Well, we had a first. By bringing Susanna Crampton back for her second, we had a first. Uh, we did some we did some microphone repairs right before the beginning of the show. <laughs> Don't say that. But maybe saw. she won't be able to return it. Hey, Elizabeth. <laughs> hey, Chloe. Hey, Mom. Oh, Papa Brogan. My parents are here. Now, we tried this before. We had Susanna Crampton on from Svartblas and uh, Svartblas. Um, and uh, she's, uh, amongst other things, a shepherd in Ireland and um, a regenerative farming expert. Yes. And she makes beautiful wool goods. She's a woolly. And she's an something. author, a children's an author. book author. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have her back because we had the worst pro problem with broadband list last time. But boy, this time, everybody, fingers crossed, we're going to do it. <laughs> It's going to be a thing. Everything's going to work. Everything's going to be all right, as that song says. Hi, everyone. Tim Kitzer from NBA Jam and NFL Blitz, welcoming you to The Backpack Show. Your hosts, Chris Brogan, Kerry Gorgone, Boom Shakalaka. Backpack Show. I had Susanna on the, the first and second time because I was sitting here trying to imagine what it would be like if somebody picked a little like, you know, do you ever hear the phrase God's little acre? Like they found their perfect spot in the world and made their life there and made a living there, wherever that is. And I was like, I wonder if you could make a living in some like remote corner of Ireland, just shepherding or something. <laughs> so I found her. You did. You found her and she's there. And I, it's like I dreamed her up. And there she was. <laughs> and there she was. Now, Susanna Crampton has like an intense following, a lot of fans. So, I mean, hopefully a couple of those will come by and say howdy today as well. But remember, this is uh, we make this show so you can have all the questions you want. You can ask everything. Um, by the way, did you know? Look what I just did. The show is sponsored <laughs> by StreamYard. I forget to do my ads at the beginning. Oh. Uh, so you can make a show just like this. You can, you know, set up a duck, turn it just the right way. And next oh thing you know, video gosh. comes out of it. It's very easy to use. It's easy for guests to join. It's easy for us to show your comments. The whole thing is very easy. You'll love it. Cbrogan.me slash streamyard. Come get some. Um, hey, if you want an audio version of this show, you can get that anywhere that there's a podcast. Just go to castos.com for hosting, though, and you can start your own, too. We use it. Also very easy. You see a theme here? We're into easy. That's <laughs> true. Maybe I'm easy. I'm easy. I'm easy. I'm an easy man. All right. Let's get us a Susanna Crampton and start asking questions. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. A second time. <laughs> we made it. I know. Fingers crossed. And I'm on time today. So Super early even. Let's do this. Let's find out what people do, do and don't remember from last time. Svartblas, can you talk to us a little bit about these creatures of yours that you, you manage up in the hills? Um, well, I'm actually down in a river valley, Dang but uh, the beautiful Nor River Valley in, in southeast Kilkenny. Um, the Zwartblas are a breed of sheep. Here, I can show you a picture. They are black with, whoops, wrong way. I'm not very good at this mirror imaging. Well, they're you can rule out a career in weather. And they're from an area called Friesland in the Netherlands. And you can milk them, you can use their fleeces for wool products, which I do, and you can also eat them. So they're a trifecta breed of sheep, uh, which I have here uh, on our farm in Southeast Ireland in Kilkenny. So, Al yeah. Along the way, 
you have not just decided to raise sheep, you've decided to make this an entertainment project. You have lots of creatures who have their own Instagrams and Twitter accounts and everything like that. You have a lot of famous people. Uh, how did that come about? And what made you decide we could tell some of the story that way? Well, basically, it was fan-driven, completely fan-driven, in that I started off on social media just to sell rare-breed sheep. And the characters evolved in the videos, and like Inca, the world's smallest sheepdog. Uh, then there was Bodacious, who ended up getting a book written by him through fan demand. Years ago, this is, I started on Twitter like 11 years ago, and it was basically just to sell the sheep and the meat to other breeders. And that was purely it. And because of my photography and the videos, people wanted, first they wanted the yarn. Then I had to produce so much yarn that before the mill, woolen mill would take me on, that um, I had to find all the rare sheep breeders across Ireland that had Zwartbath sheep and uh, collect all their wool. And I had so much yarn, I knew I wasn't going to sell it, even though it's 100% natural and black and no dyes involved. There were a lot of people who don't knit. So I then had to design a blanket. So this is one of three blankets that I designed. And the design is based on the sheep. So it's a black sheep, but it has two white bobby socks, a white blaze, and a white tip to the tail. And that's the basis of the four stripes. And this is the, the travel rug, which has the tassels, which is a very traditional kind of Irish blanket, which when you were in a pony and trap or a donkey and trap, you would have this would drape over your legs to keep you warm. So it's called a travel rug. And it's of a traditional heavy weight. It's not light and fluffy. So it can be used for through generations. And then I have a bed blanket and then a small cat blanket. And the cat blanket, again, was designed because fans of Bodacious wanted it. Then I was hunted out by, I think I was at one point in 2017, I had five or six different agencies, agents, and the equivalent amount of different publishers, if not more, pursuing me to write a book. And um, I panicked and phoned up a friend of mine. This was before I was, this was the week before I was due to go on a lecture tour to the USA. And I phoned this friend of mine on the Wednesday. And he said, I think I have somebody who's coming back from the States on the Tuesday. I spoke to this woman and within four days of conversations on the phone, um, I had an agent within days of me leaving to the States on the Monday, there was a bit, she got a bidding war going between all the publishers who had approached me till I got this huge advance for a non pursuing writer who's dyslexic so it was an extraordinary yeah there's bodacious it has not yet been published in the usa it's been published in england and ireland it's translated into uh german french italian and japanese i've had japanese film crews over here before sadly bodacious died uh on saint bridget's day 
in 2019, which St. Bridget's mm. Day is a very agricultural day. So it was very uh, prophetic that he had died on that day. And he had a huge following of people and fans. And the, to backtrack slightly, we had the film crew here while he was still alive filming him. And the wonderful man who was doing the filming would have been the uh, David Attenborough equivalent in Japan who loved cats. And we happened at the time, to, the film footage is gorgeous of Bodacious. <laughs> and this is, this is uh, Time, the new kitten. Bodacious because of his death and another cat character I have here on the farm, Miss Marley. Um, has both they both died? I then got two kittens to fill in the ratter gap, as it were. Because on a farm, if you're farming for nature, uh, you don't want to poison rodents because then the owls and the foxes and all the other animals that eat the rodents can be poisoned as well. So I have to do it as naturally as possible, which is where the cats come in, and basically. Through this whole thing, I've always farmed with nature. I My agricultural education came from Sterling College in Vermont. And uh, it has always been part and parcel of how I farm. There were times when I used fertilizers and things like that, but that was to turn the land around from an intensity to a less intensity while I changed over the grasslands from mainly one kind of um, uh, a grass to a multi-species sward. And so it was a whole evolution and people have followed me on that. And I mean, the extraordinary thing was my patron account. I had for years some lovely people telling me to uh, get onto patron because they wanted to support me. They didn't want to buy the products. I do sell a calendar every year and cards and things like that. And people love and are very generous at annually buying their calendars and giving them as gifts. Have a calendar, but, Susanna. Sorry, can we, can we see a calendar? Oh, help! Do you... I don't have. One. Okay, no, I'm well, just, I'm just wondering one, what that the looks 2022 like. Twenty twenty two calendar is in the works, okay. so it's not ready. I only have the twenty twenty one one. And I I'm just want to know how do you, do you choose? Do you choose like the hottest sheep for that, or like what's the what's <laughs> well, no, it's election a process? It's a mixture of all my photographs. It's the best of the photographs. And I get several people to go through them and say, not that one. Oh, I love that one. And sometimes they choose photographs that I would never have chosen. And they say, no, and it ends up being the most popular. So I, I try to um, have as many people involved as possible because one is never always you know, one is definitely never always correct. <laughs> so it's always good to get input from other people. Because I always say we're not always there. right. Not always right, but we're never in doubt. <laughs> good, good term. Good term. Oh, there it is. So that's how it all evolved. And also I found that uh, using animal characters kind of helped educate people about farming and uh, food and where it comes from and all these kind of things. Because here in Ireland, uh, during the 1960s and 70s, there was troubles in the north of Ireland. And when I was very young, they a lot of 
mothers and children were brought as refugees to the local military barracks. And uh, my granny here would go in and fill the car. This is before health and safety. Uh, the car would be chock-a-block stuffed with children. And we'd bring them out to the farm. And these were all inner city children from places like Derry and Belfast, where all the troubles were occurring. And we would show them around the farm. And I, the impression I got is with me to this day that these children hadn't a clue where food came from. They were absolutely disgusted that milk came from a cow. They were appalled the potatoes were dug out of the ground. And they wanted to eat green apples off the trees that weren't ripe and would get belly aches. And so through most of my life, it's always been trying to get people to understand where food comes from, where healthy food comes from, and things like that. So it's, uh, and I was a photography teacher for a number of years, and I worked for a wildlife charity in Southeast Asia, which was very, very interesting experience. And you're rattling this off like it just happened, like it right. literally like you makes just sense. wandered in, yeah. <laughs> Carrie and I had the same thought. It sounds like, uh, with hindsight, this all fits a perfectly nice puzzle. Uh, it doesn't seem you couldn't have possibly have thought this all. You couldn't have been like seven and saying, you know, one day, and then you start plotting this course. How did that happen? How did you pick the various things that made you all that you are now? I went with the flow. Basically, I have always loved animals. Um, a lot of people have said that I'm touched with animals because they respond to me. Uh, I had, I never really believed it. I just read their body language and they read mine. I never really believed I had a unique ability to converse with animals until I was working for the wildlife charity in Southeast Asia. And these scientists realized this. And they were collecting DNA from a particular species of primate. And they asked me, they'd seen me with some young tigers who had uh, approached me and cuffled. That's the uh, tigers purring. And I would scratch these tigers in the roughs on the cheeks here. And they would act like a cat and go, oh, yes, more, more. And if I came to these enclosures and didn't talk to them, they'd get very cross until I went over and talked to them. And these scientists saw this and they said, well, can you come help us with these primates? We need to yank a few hairs out of each one to do DNA analysis for to figure out the families and uh, who's related to who, et cetera, and who we need to take out of the enclosure. So I went over and uh, these, uh, and I can't, I'm off, I can't remember what species of primate it was, but it wasn't a common one. It was one of the rare ones from where I, one of the places I was working in, uh, I think it was in Indonesia at the time. And I was, the, the bars were there and I was on the, the outside of the bars and the monkeys would come over, the primates would come over and I would pretend to groom them. And then I'd pretend I'd found a tick or a mouse and I'd yank some hair out to get the roots. And the monkey would turn around and go, ow, that hurt. And I go, oh, I'm so sorry. And then I'd hand it out 
the back like this to the scientist who would grab it and put it in an envelope. And, and I did that for a whole series of uh, different primates. But then the scientists sometimes played awful tricks on me. And there was one time we were in the rainforest to collect some uh, information. And we were walking down this one side of the stream and they said, oh, can you go over there? Um, we see something that is kind of interesting. Now, they knew exactly what was on the other side of the bank of the river because they'd been collecting uh, data on this route regularly. And I started climbing up this bank and it suddenly sounded like I'd stepped into a nest of rattlers. And I froze and I was like, what have you done? They said, oh, don't worry, it's just ants. And they rattle the inside of grasses and it makes them sound as a whole community. They'd rattle the grasses so you'd think you were about to be bitten by something ferocious. And I was furious with the scientists and they were all splitting their sides on the other side of the river. See, now I feel like I should study a lot more things so I can play a lot more jokes. But I have just a few comments that have come in while we're talking. Elizabeth loves the calendar photographs. Different Elizabeth says it's true. And I remember seeing my first uh, dairy farm and almost gave up ice cream and eventually did later, but lactose intolerant and gluten free now. That's a very, that's a journey. And she says, smelly, the cows are cute and it's hard to eat an animal that smiles back at you. Leslie loves how your business started as a farm, but has become so much more than that. So let's talk just a wee bit about this. But first, I have to put you backstage for a second. I have to read a couple ads. It'll be 60 seconds. Don't anyone go too far. And everybody remember that we get a chance to talk to the coolest people. We really do. Ask them any questions. I was it's literally okay. like, I wonder what life is like when you're a sheep farmer in Ireland. And now you know. <laughs> do. We're sponsored by Presearch. You can go look up all the questions you have about those uh, Svartblas uh, sheep and everything else you need to know. Presearch.com. Stick it to the man. You don't need to use Google. If you don't like how Google does things, there's an alternative, and it's darn good. Mm -hmm. Hey, do you want to make a domain for any one of Susanna's creatures? You can. <laughs> Just go to cbrogan.me slash online, and you can get a dot .online domain, but use the code CHRIS, and you can get that dot .online domain for $1 for the first year. That code's all caps, everyone. Code's all caps. All right. <laughs> uh, hey, are you in California? Do you need a lawyer? Well, Mitch Jackson is California's number one leading trial attorney. Good guy, lots of opinions, wonderful person. Hung out with him a bunch of times at a lot of different conferences. Also on the bleeding edge of technology and more, and an incredible newsletter at his site. Go to streaming.lawyer to get all things. You Mitch said lots Jackson. of opinions, like you don't have lots of opinions. <laughs> Well, he's a lawyer. He like writes them. See, you know, opinions. Um, <clears throat> Those are logical. They don't. They don't. Shh. Okay. You told me the other day lawmakers wrote laws too. All right. Uh, politicians or something. Politicians. Right. Yeah. So you say. Let's grab Susanna. So, regenerative farming. What the heck is that? I mean, we know how we're supposed to be organic and all that. What are you doing that makes it different than that? Regenerative farming is basically regenerating the soil. So you have to think of the soil and the microbiology and the microbial life and the bacteria and all these different things that need to be in a healthy soil. All the springtails, the dung beetles, all these things need to be in healthy soil. And what's happened is with agriculture and farming is they've become dependent on 
an intensification through artificial fertilizers and limes and lots of tractors going across the land and also monoculture of crops, be they ryegrass for grazing or corn or maize or uh, potatoes or cabbages and uh, plowing the land releases carbon into the atmosphere. Whereas a multi-species sward, which is a multi uh, many species in the pasture land, which includes herbs and legumes and uh, wildflowers and so many different grasses. For example, dandelions. Most people think of dandelions as one species, but there are hundreds of different species of dandelion. And I can walk through my fields here and I can easily pick 10 different, dandy, different dandelions to show you that there is a multiple of species of dandelions. And regenerating the soil means having all these different species and your livestock are grazing it in a kind of uh, ancient traditional way of mob grazing. They're always moving so they don't always eat the sweet bits all the time and go back to them so that they become extinct in that pasture land. And the other thing you need with the livestock are the dung beetles. And dung beetles are as important as pollinators. We all hear about how important pollinators are to pollinate the food, the fruit, the vegetable, the fruits, all of the different foods that we grow need the pollinators. You don't want to be going around with a little um, paintbrush to pollinate like they do in places where the pollinators have all died and they need to produce food. So the same is for dung beetles, exactly. The dung beetles are in all different countries around the world. They did have to get introduced to Australia, but except for uh, Greenland and Iceland. And we have about 40 different kinds of dung beetles here in Ireland. And it's something that myself and a lot of other people have been trying to get people aware of, the vital importance of herbivores and dung beetles and multi-species swords of grasslands, because you get the different depth rates of different root structures that go to different depths in the soil that bring up different vitamins and minerals. And the dung beetle digs down in and is bringing in the manure and the minerals in and bringing other things up, which the plant life then brings up with it. And the dung is also microbiology and microbial life, which is really important. So the ruminant, which is the cow, the sheep, the goat. The pooper. The poop is hugely important to a healthy soil, which also makes for healthy crops. So you now you know, I'm sure, with food and all the conversations with people, everybody's talking about hydroponics and you can make these apartment blocks. To me, that's sterile food because no microbiology is involved in it. And for us as humans, we need the microbiology is hugely important. It's what makes our brain work. It's our digestive tract. It's what keeps our skin healthy. We are microbes. We are microbial life as well. That's a kind of fungals, funguses and things like that. And they're important in soil. And the herbicides and insecticides and fertilizers kill all those things off. So we need to have 
all these kind of things cycling in the soil for help. Um, the southeast of England, which has been in tillage for hundreds of years, is now having to bring back livestock to rotate through their tillage systems to rejuvenate the soils with the microbiology within the soil. It's one of the reasons why cows are always being accused of burning down the Amazon. When you chop down a rainforest, you are getting rid of all the life which is above soil. The soil underneath has very little of the microbial life. So you throw the grass seed down and you fertilize it and the cow's microbiology reactivates the soil. And then soya farmers come in after the cows. It's all very controversial uh, kind of um, uh, things about the cows in the Amazon, but it's how they're used. Hey, Susanna. Yeah, Cody sorry. had a question. No, sorry. Cody was wondering, do you need a certain amount of acres per a certain number of sheep? And is there a recommended number of sheep in a herd to keep them happy, like socially? You would want at least three sheep because they are a flock animal. Or if you have, it's good to have like uh, at least two cows and at least three goats because they're herd and flock animals. Uh, and they need the company. It's, it's good for them to rub off of each other. It's that kind of uh, social network they need. And for acreage, if you wanted to farm it regeneratively, you would at least want two to three acres for your sheep to move through in a sequence so that the land got you know, a good amount of rest so you had the biodiversity. Um, within your small acreage. Chloe had a question also. Do you think the rise of food allergies is connected to the shift in to how we farm now? Absolutely. Because there was a fascinating research paper that came out several years ago, I think. And it was very interesting about um, uh, foods. And basically they had, I think like eight or 900 people involved in this research. It took place in the USA. And um, what they did is everybody had to do a food diary, but they also had to send the researchers their poop once a week. And they analyzed everybody's fecal matter to see if the food diary, what was digested and what went through the system and what didn't. And you were supposed to also say what medication you were on, what vitamins you were taking, and you had to pay to be part of this research. It wasn't um, a free research thing. And what was really interesting is that the amount of nutrition that people got who ate less processed food was much better that they absorbed than, for example, those who ate more processed food but then would have supplements. Like if you took a B12 supplement, you would only get a tiny percentage of that. Whereas if you ate foods that were really good and nutritious in a good B12, you would then, you would absorb more of, more of it and less of it would be out in your poop. So it was very, very interesting research. And one of the things they said that was very interesting was to do with our internal microbial life. And they came to the conclusion that if you, one of the conclusions they came to, sorry, was that if you eat 35 or more different 
food types per day. Now, that means that if you had mixed nuts, each different kind of nut, if you had a mixed salad, each one of those would be a different food. If you had it, 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 but as long as it wasn't processed foods, then your microbial life is much more active. And that helps your metabolism as well as your white blood cells, as well as your immunity to fight things off and things like that. It was absolutely fascinating research. And I can't find it now. I've looked for it occasionally um, to bring it up again. But I remember reading about it. And it was very, very interesting in that respect. So Paul says, this is one heck of a show. Yesterday, power reading. Today, poop. Paul, this is not the first time we have talked about poop on this we show. We love poop on this show. We had Dr. Embriette Hyde on, and she is a microbiome researcher. But also, Paul, note that this is Irish poop. So Paul's in Ireland. So, <laughs> oh, is Paul in Ireland? Very good, Paul. Yay. You can just, you pay somebody and then you mail them your poop is how this. Well, this yeah. was the research project. I don't right. think that happens now. I mean, I'm sure it happens. We just have to find the right subreddit. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, it does remind me of the time that I went to O'Shaughnessy's pub and I went over and I cut a little bit off of the the chairs up at the front of the bar. Then I went to Linehan's pub and I cut off some of their chairs over by the bar. And then I went to McCready's and I cut some of the parts of their chair off the bar because they said I needed to submit stool samples. So (laughs) you are bold. I am terrible. You're very bold. I'm terrible. Oh, Christopher. I'm going to go and herd sheep mm-hmm. in Ireland or something. Yes. <laughs> well, you're welcome to come visit and then you can do a live broadcast amongst the sheep. I would love it. Um, you know, so we were talking earlier, just a brief moment about the fact that your, your sheep are a threefer. You know, you could drink the milk, you could take the uh, wool and you can eat them. H- uh, how does one of your Svartblas, uh stack up against other uh, of their family? Like, because there are three things, are they less tasty or more tasty? Oh, they're more tasty. Well, particularly one of the things when I have tour groups come through is talking about food and what you put into food increases not only the nutritional value, but also the flavor. So if you graze a multi-species sward of herbs and grasses and legumes and flowers, it tastes, the meat tastes better. It occurs also if lots of people now have chickens. So if you have leftover curry, for example, and you feed the leftover vegetable curry to your chickens, over the next few days, your eggs are going to taste like slightly curried. So I suggest you don't give them your curried vegetables because it kind of tastes off. But it's what you put in is what you get out. So I have a queue of people when I have, I harvest the uh, male lambs that aren't going to go on for breeding. Um, I have a queue of people who want them because the meat is very tender and delicious. So the meat is very good. The milk is excellent. And there's a couple of sheep dairies here in Ireland that milk Svartlas sheep. I don't personally yet. One day I win the lottery. I can set up and make sheep's milk ice cream. I make a mean sheep's milk ice cream. It is really good because you use less sugar because it's a sweeter milk. Um, Then the wool, the only negative about the wool is it's black. So you can't dye it all the different colors. So basically, that's why it's such a good trifecta. And it makes delicious. I have wool sweaters that people have knitted me that I live in through the winter. 
I think it's popular with all the goth kids, so they're going to be just so thrilled to have black uh, cardigans and black, you know, cable knits and all that. So, I think you, I think you're doing a service for a whole, uh, you know, underserved part of the wool wool appreciative tribes. We're at a different part of the show. We have to do a couple things. We have to do our person of the day, for instance. Oh, and here's our person of the day. Kaboom! I had a few I could have chose today, but I'm going to go with Cody, especially for backpack show is scat fanatics. That's, that's a that's an assertion. So that entitles you to one free apple, Cody. Hopefully you could get one that's organic and it has at least 34 other foodstuffs in it. Um, make sure you wash it first. Um, Carl shows up just in time for goth cable knit sweaters. Um, and now we're at the part of the show where we've asked every guest that we've ever had on the same question, which is what goes in your backpack? This could be something physical, like uh, an avocado. It could be something metaphorical, like hopes and dreams for the future. Carrie, what's something good and physical that you could throw in a backpack? A wool blanket. From oh, like you're thinking. <laughs> that was a beautiful looking blanket. Right. Um, all right. And then what's something metaphorical we can add to a backpack? Oh, kindness. Mm, that's a good one. Susanna Crampton, what are you going to add to the backpack for us today? Ah, always enjoy a good curiosity about whatever you're interested in in life. I like it. Always yeah. ask questions. We'll throw some curiosity in there. I think that's a reasonable thing. I'm on the whole idea of Black Parade from my chemical romance. Cody, Cody's on fire. He deserved the title today. He does. He does. <laughs> well, uh, so my uh, my aunt Jane uh, ra uh, raised horses. She's sheltered horses, uh, dressage horses, and uh, took care of them and all that sort of thing, but had a lot of other animals around. My grandmother was notorious for walking around always pointing. She always had her finger out. She learned something about animals, and when you point your finger out all the time, and that's basically... <laughs> 